New City Church, y'all can have a seat. Good morning. Uh, my name is AJ. Uh, I'm on staff here at New City Church, and I have the privilege of open up, opening up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, if this is your first time, I just want to say welcome. Uh, I am so glad that you are here. Uh, I don't believe that you're here by accident, um, and I feel like God's got something for you this morning, uh, not necessarily from me, but from himself, and to show you what he is doing here at New City Church. And so this morning, we're going to be continuing our, up, our series called The Upper Room, uh, where we walk through, uh, or walking through John uh, chapter 13 through 17, Jesus' last night with his disciples. And so we're beginning to wind that down, at least the teaching part of that, uh, and so we're going to begin seeing today, kind of what, uh, and next week, the final two teachings uh, that Jesus gives his disciples in his last night with them. And so we're going to uh, talk about a lot of fun things this morning, like sorrow, um, but thankfully I'm really thankful for uh, our passage today. Uh, and I'm just thankful for really just all of Scripture that gives us a sweet truth, and our main idea comes out of that, uh, which is Jesus turns our sorrow to joy. And as we read our passage, you'll see that I didn't have to work very hard for this, but I'm excited to preach today that Jesus turns our sorrow to joy. Jesus, the Son of God, is the one that can take our sorrow and turn it to joy. And so uh, a little context to help us understand what's going on in our passage is that the disciples, I believe, are just on an emotional roller coaster. Man, in, the, in their last night together, they've had a wonderful meal together with Jesus. They've had Jesus wash their feet. He's given them a new commandment. He says, hey, I'm going to give you a helper to help you along in this life. But oh, yes, I'm going away. And so we even see in the beginning of uh, chapter 16 that the disciples have sorrow. And Jesus is saying, take heart. I'm, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to provide for you. But it's just an emotional roller coaster. And I feel like we can all resonate what it means like to be on an emotional roller coaster. Um, just a few weeks ago, I went with my dad and my brother while I was visiting North Carolina, and we went and saw Top Gun, uh, the new one, all right? And so I was just going in like, this is going to be a great classic movie, right? This is going to be good. And man, I was on an emotional roller coaster. Y'all, I was like, man, this is just going to be like the first one. It's going to be fine. And I was like on the verge of tears. Like, I promise you, I'm not like making this up. I was on the verge of tears on the edge of my seat multiple times. And I like walked out of that, and I said, guys, I did not expect this. Okay, I, just, I wasn't ready. I was exhausted after watching a movie. I, I had the privilege of going to a uh, watch party for the Stanley Cup Finals in Emily Arena, and it was a blast, uh, and it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of great people there. But, I mean, I was, if you really think about what I did, I sat and watched a screen for like three or four hours. And after that, y'all, I was exhausted. That was an emotional roller coaster in and of itself. All right, somebody, they scored. The other team scored. I'm, I'm sitting here. By the end of the day, I'm like, man, I am tired. These were emotional roller coasters. But I think even more on a serious note, we can understand what it means to be on an emotional roller coaster in the midst of a day where it starts out really good. Man, you get up before your alarm clock. Man, the coffee that you make is good. Maybe you got time to go through Starbucks. And then you get to work and things begin to go off the rails. And you're like, what is happening? It's an emotional roller coaster of a day. And those are, those are little things. We know big things even happens in our lives that like just throw us off when you, when you learn that, oh man, this person's moving away or this person's gotten sick or this person's no longer with us. And so we begin to see these emotional roller coasters and sorrow enters our life. And I think we can all think to a time when that's happened. And so we begin to think, what do we do with this? And so I'm thankful for our passage today that in the midst of all of that, Jesus tells us what he's gonna do for us. And he's going to turn that sorrow to joy. 
uh, but we have to continue to walk through that sorrow because we've all faced it and we've all walked through hard times. And so we're going to go ahead and read our passage today and then we're going to explain it and kind of jump in uh, to that. Um, but before we do, I have, to, I have to own up to this. I have uh, picked lovingly on our pastor uh, the past few weeks. He's been loving some sub points. And I've been like, man, we just need two points. But I looked at our passage this week as I was preparing it, and I felt convicted by the Holy Spirit because I was like, I got a lot to say, and I think I'm going to need some sub points. <laughs> and so we do have some of those running through, um, but, uh, but that's going to be fun as well. So let's go ahead and read our passage. We're going to be in John chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 16. It says, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy, turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So there's a lot in this text, and we're going we're to take our time this morning and, and walk through it uh, and see what God has for us this morning. Uh, but one of the first things, uh, as we begin to look at it and begin to figure it out, that jumps out to me uh, is just that the disciples were confused. Like they're spending like this evening with Jesus, his last night, and they're just confused at what he's saying. And we see that just in verse 17 and 18, where some of his disciples were saying to one another, what is this that he says to us? And you jump down and it says, we don't know what he's talking about. I just, honestly, I really appreciate the disciples like honesty here. Um, I don't know if y'all have ever been in a situation and you just don't know what the other person's saying. You don't know, like you're trying to figure out, you're trying to connect the dots. And I'm a guy who loves to connect it all. And sometimes I'm like, man, I'm, I'm going to need you to run that back one more time because I just do not know. Because, I mean, if we think about it in the context of what's happening, and I, I've already mentioned this a little bit, is Jesus, is, it's his last night with them, and they're on this emotional roller coaster. He's, Jesus has shared a meal, meal with them. He's washed their feet. He's given them a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And so that in and of itself, we've unpacked, but it's, it's massive. And then he's promised them this Holy Spirit that's going to come. But it means that he's going to have to go away. And then we see that, that the uh, so that the whole world can be reached. But he's even told them even before that that they're, they're going to be hated by the world. And so they're like, what is going on? What do you mean you're going to go away and then you're going to come back and then this father business? What is going on? And so I really appreciate, and I think it's just a sweet moment that we get in the beginning of verse 19 where Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And I can quickly like move past that, but I think it's just good to stop for a minute that Jesus knew their hearts. He just discerned it, and he knew that his disciples were troubled, they were sorrowful, and in this moment where he's talking about all these big things, he just kind of takes a moment, and what he's about to walk them through let, gives them that, like, peace of mind. 
that peace that, like, hey, I'm with you. I'm going to take care of you. I know what's on your hearts, and I'm going to walk with you through this. Now, as we read through this, you can be like, well, his answer wasn't like really clear. Uh, and so thankfully, uh, and next week we'll look at this in uh, verse 25, he says that he hasn't been talking plainly. And I'm like, finally, Jesus, you just admit it. Okay, it's been hard. But in this, he says that he hasn't been talking sp- plainly, but in figures of speech. And so in this, though, I feel like we can begin to discern what Jesus talking about and kind of walk our way through that using uh, two points here today. And so let's, we're going to use what's clear and use that to discern what Jesus is saying. And that's going to give us our first point for today. And that's sorrow is inevitable. And so I know that's a really joyful like way to start out, but sorrow is inevitable. And we see that in our passage today. Look with me at verse 20 and uh, verse 22, where it says, uh, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. In verse 22, it says, so also you have sorrow now. And so we saw earlier in chapter 16 when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going away, that they are filled with sorrow just by the thought of it. Um, but now Jesus is saying, actually, no, we're actually, you're actually going to be weeping. You're going to be lamenting. Like this isn't just the thought of sorrow, but this is more than that. And so he begins, so let's just kind of jump in starting in verse 16. And we're going to unpack this uh, and figure out what Jesus is saying as we work through our first point that sorrow is inevitable. And so in the beginning of verse 16, he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And so in the context of what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about going away. He's he's referring in this moment uh, to his death and his burial because he's going to go away. They're not going to be able to see him in this uh, because we can use the context of our verse uh, that the world is going to rejoice when this happens. And the world does rejoice. Man, Satan thinks that he has won. The Pharisees think that they have won, but only for a little while. And so we can go further into verse 16 where it says, a little while and you will see me. And so we know that he's going to go away, but then he's coming back. And so what does this mean? And so as I study that, you know, people were, came down on different sides of this. One uh, group likes to think that this means when Jesus is coming back in all of his glory and they will see him uh, in that. And so I think the word a little while uh, doesn't give a ton of credit to that. Uh, And so I agree with the scholars that say this is more about his post-resurrection sightings. That he's going to, he's going to go to the grave. He's going to die He's going to be buried, but then he's going to raise again, and they're going to see him for a little while. And I think what we can even see is the disciples tee it up for us in verse 17, is it says, you will not see me, and then you'll see me for a little while, and because I'm going to the Father. And so what we begin to see is that, yes, they're going to see him. He's going to be with them. He's going to teach them and love them and give them assurance of what is going on in this. And then what we get to know is that in the book of Acts, and we see this in other gospels, then he's going to ascend and be with the Father. And so they're going to see him for a while, but that does not mean, and I love how just scripture begins to like all build and stack onto itself in this, is that the Holy Spirit's going to come in that. That he's not going to leave them alone at any point of it uh, in this, is that no, the Holy Spirit will be there with them. And as Jesus goes and sits at the right hand of the Father, Father and intercedes on behalf of us, he will await until he comes again. And so we can also wait expectantly as the disciples will for his coming. But in that, in that waiting and knowing that God is providing all that we need, we realize our first pointing in that sorrow is inevitable while we wait. We can see that in our passage, uh, but we can also see it just in the life of Jesus, that sorrow is inevitable because of what has to come. 
in order for joy to come into the picture. Jesus will have to be betrayed. He will have to be beaten, crucified, and die a criminal's death. And I just, I don't believe that the disciples could even fathom all that was about to unfold in this story. I just, but just even hearing that their Lord was going away was enough to make them sorrowful. And so I believe Jesus, I take him at his words in all things, but really in this point when he says there will be weeping and lamenting because he knows what's coming and the impact that it's going to have. We know that Jesus himself, according to Isaiah 53, 3, tells us that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It was part of the disciples' journey. In verse 20, we see that you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. We know that they were already sorrowful and now the thought of being without Christ makes them more sorrowful. And then just even beginning to paint that picture, I struggle of like actually being without their Messiah. It was baked into their culture, look for the Messiah, and they had found him. And then he's like, actually, no, I'm going away. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, come on, man, we're here. We got this. And he's going away. And so they're sorrowful in this. And the only way that I can even begin to like connect this with myself is every now and then I have these stray thoughts of what happens if something were to happen to Jordan or my boys. And it's like immediate like sorrow. It's just like fills me and I'm, I begin to spiral. And if it happens at night when I'm trying to go to sleep, I'm like, well, I'm going to stay up reading for a little while because I can't sleep with this on my mind. And so in all these things, I'm just filled with it. And so I got to find a way to get joy out of this. And I've been through others who have had tragic and sudden loss and the amount of sorrow that was in a home, man, it's palpable. And so I, I can begin to grasp it, but even in so, I feel like I struggle with it because Jesus says there'll be weeping and lamenting. And I think we can all begin to realize that sorrow is inevitable. We look around the world and we just see that, man, life is hard. Every book that I've read recently, fiction, nonfiction, tells me that life is hard. And so there's this reality, and so sometimes I feel like it's hard to understand, like, why is it? Where is this sorrow coming from? And so I think our text gives us, like, three ways that we're acquainted with sorrow. And we'll, we'll just move through these quickly, and these are these fun subpoints that I were talking about. Well, these aren't the fun ones. We're going to get to the fun ones, though, okay? But the first way that we see that we're acquainted with sorrow in our text is with personal circumstance or situation. Man, we see the disciples in this. I mean, they didn't see that this was going to, they didn't play out the way they thought it would for their king and their Messiah. Their personal circumstance led them to be sorrowful. They're sitting there and they're struggling. Their, their king is about to be killed, is about to be crucified. And so when that happens, it's going to add sorrow. And so I just imagine them saying, even though they even said it kind of in, in our passage today, that it just doesn't make sense. This isn't how the story's supposed to go. And I, I don't know if you've had that moment in your life where you just said, this isn't how it's supposed to play out. If I was drawing it up, I definitely would not have done it this way. But still, we find in our circumstances or situation that sorrow comes. People get sick. Jobs are lost. Relationships are broken. People move away like things hurt. And sorrow comes in. And so I'm thankful that our passage here in just a few moments is going to show us what to do with that, but we have to realize how sorrow comes. I think another way that we're acquainted with grief is that we just see evil triumph. We see it in our passage. What happens, Jesus is going to tell them, what's going to happen when I am murdered, when I'm crucified and buried in the grave? 
the world is going to rejoice. It appears that evil has triumphed in this moment. And so does evil really triumph? I, I can confidently say, and I believe that's a sermon in and of itself, but we preach this every week, that the victory belongs to Jesus. And so we're going to get to the joy part here in a few minutes, but I need to make sure that's clear when we ask that question. But the victory belongs to Jesus. Jesus gets the last word, but until he returns, the battle still rages on for souls. And so it seems that evil can triumph. People can be taken advantage of in order to make a quick dollar. We see it, human trafficking and prostitution. We see crooked politicians and landlords and people in every profession seem to be cheating and lying and getting ahead. And it seems like evil is triumphing. And it breaks our hearts. And we're just filled with sorrow. And we, we begin to really understand this with our third kind of sub-point here, is that we're just living in a fallen creation. We live in a broken world that has disasters and fallen people. And ultimately, sorrow comes in because we all have to feel that sting and pain of death. It's just around us. And we're, we're broken in that. And so things aren't going to go the way they should. People don't behave the way they should. And so our, our sorrow just at times just comes from living in a fallen world. Car wrecks happen. Natural disasters come. And I, as much as we want to, and I love control, we can't control this world. And so when it hits, it just hits hard. I mean, like real hard, like knock you on your back. And you're like, what in the world is going on? And we just, I, I, we sit like the psalmist and we just cry, oh Lord, where are you? What is going on? Like sorrow fills us. And I know we're not hitting on a whole bunch of happy stuff right now. And I like to be this super optimistic guy, but I also realize like, man, this is what the text is showing us today. And so I want you just to stay with me for a few more moments because we're going to see how this sorrow is transformed and what Jesus does with it. But I think it's helpful in these moments to just acknowledge that sorrow is inevitable. Man, that it's real. That it's something that we're all going to walk through. And though there is a promise of joy, man, we can't rush through this too quickly. Man, we can't cause, call ourselves to do that and just push it away and tuck it under the rug. No, we got we to work through that. I'm really thankful for our pastor that he says that emotions are good and they're, they're, they can help, they're healthy. Like, we don't need to ignore them. That's my natural bent, if I'm being honest. I'm like, well, that's, that doesn't feel right. Let's put that away. But that's not what we need to do. We need to not rush through these just to get to the joy part. Because I want you to hear this, that though the valley is hard, God is preparing us in these moments. Because I want to jump ahead just because God is a redeeming God. He's not doing things just to make us sorrowful. No, he's doing things so that he can be glorified. He's going to take that sorrow. He's going to redeem it. And so let us not be quick to move through these things or call, call other people to move quickly through them and just get to, it's all going to be okay. There's a way to walk healthily through sorrow. Because I imagine if, as you have or, or you will, when you walk through that, you don't want people just pushing you. Just, just man, just, just remember, joy's coming, joy's coming. Like, yes, we want to tell people that and we want to lead them to that. But we need to be gentle with people and help walk them through and point them to the Savior. Not just pick them up and say, look, be happy. We can't do that. So we can't force people to fake it till they make it. But instead, we walk with them and help them 
see our second point today, which is Jesus turns our sorrow to joy. And y'all, I'm excited to make this turn because whew, you can talk about sorrow for a little bit. But as I said, feelings start to come up and you're like, hey, like we can be in that, but let's turn and see that how our sorrow turns to joy. And so I'm thankful for Jesus in this moment because he gave us the best illustration. I mean, Jesus is perfect in every way and he's perfect in how he chooses his illustrations. Mine fall flat. They're not funny. Uh, they don't always work, but Jesus is work. All right. And it, yeah, I just think it's beautiful here. And so let's look with me at verse 21. It says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Can I get an amen from a lady? Amen. There it is. There it is. Y'all, I don't claim, and I'm going to be really honest. I don't claim to know the sorrow and anguish that comes with giving birth. That ain't me. All right. But I had the privilege of being there with both of my boys when they were born. Okay. That was sweet moments. Uh, and I can at least attest to the curse from Genesis 3.16 uh, that there will be pain bringing children into the world is alive and active and still affecting women today. Okay, I was there. It's real. My wife, man, she labored, and I saw just this pain and anguish on my sweet, beautiful wife's face. I saw it, and I was so proud of her for what she was doing. I mean, so proud, but I also just felt for her because I saw what she was doing. And I was like, goodness gracious. But on both occasions uh, when my boys were born, uh, man, I saw them uh, take those sweet little babies and place them on her chest. And it was like a switch flipped. Man, that anguish and that sorrow, man, it turned to joy. It was beautiful. I loved getting to be there for that. Now, this did not mean that the pain and labor did not have its effects. Man, but I'll tell you what, we slept really hard for those first two hours after we got, you know, Grayson and Thomas all settled. I mean, it was like real good sleep because that was hard. I'm going to be really honest with y'all. I actually slept through my firstborn son's first checkup appointment. I did it. I know you said sad. It's actually just funny because... Because uh, what happened, we get to the room, I'm like, I'm, I'm locked in. Grayson was born at like 9.45 in the morning. It means we were up all night trying to get him into the world. And so we get them all settled. We're in the room. And I said, hey, Jordan, just holler at me if when Grayson wakes up, I'm going to handle everything, okay? You just did this. I'm going to take care of it. So I'm going to lay down on his couch, though, okay? I'm just going to lay down just for a second. And y'all, I did. I got a blanket. I was just cozy. I was it. And y'all, apparently... My room was full of like two doctors, about three nurses, about six residents. We had a whole party up in that room for my first son's checkup, and I, had, I was out. I was apparently snoring, okay? And it was, it was just done, all right? And so I can at least attest that bringing a baby into this world is hard. It wore me out, okay? <laughs> now, you know, I'm digressing. We should probably get back to the text here. But, um, but in this... Man, I see that this birth illustration, what Jesus is saying is going to happen for the disciples, happens for us too. Because when we look back at verses 20 through 22, we say that you will weep and lament, but, and the world will rejoice, but you're so, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. After a woman has given birth, she has delivered the baby. She no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take, that, take your joy from you. God, Jesus is saying, though sorrow is inevitable, it will turn to joy. And how does it turn to joy? 
Man, I love this. It comes just as it does for the disciples and us today as we just begin to see Jesus fully. They don't see him no longer as a great teacher, but as a king of kings, of Lord of lords, the son of God who took on the sins of the world. And so we can see and believe in his name and trust in his finished work on the cross. And in that, Jesus begins to turn and redeem our sorrow and make it joy. Jesus didn't say, and this is what is my mind. He's telling them this, that it's going to happen. Remember, he's still in the upper room with them. None of this has happened yet, but he's saying this is what's going to happen. And I promise you that your sorrow will turn to joy. It's one of my favorite things to find in scripture is when it says it will. Not that it might, but it will happen. He was foreshadowing what was to come. And so just as the woman knows, the woman with child knows what is to come, she still goes forward with it. And so we see that this woman is having to endure the curse of sin in Genesis 3.16 with pain and childbearing. But what we get to see, and this is how it all ties in, and Jesus just does this perfectly, is that Jesus went to the cross and endured the curse of sin, even though he knew no sin, so that joy could be brought into the world. And I find it fascinating that both in childbirth and in the cross, that both, both bring about new life. It's amazing how all this stuff just begins to uh, uh, align for us. Because when he went to the cross, he went away for a little while. And in that, he defeated sin and death, becoming the firstborn from the dead, making him preeminent, first above and in all things. Jesus brings about new life for those who trust in him. Jesus brings about joy for those who are sorrowful, though through his finished work on the cross. Jesus brought hope and joy and peace and love into this world and continued through his finished work. And I love the beauty that's in verse 22. At the end of verse 22 where it says, and no one will take your joy from you. Y'all, it is a beautiful thing that our joy can't be taken. I mean, it, it's, it's mind-blowing. It can't be taken by this world because Jesus has defeated the ruler of this world. He, our flesh has been crucified with Christ. Death has lost its sting because Jesus has overcome death. Satan himself can't take it from us because Jesus has defeated him. Jesus is the victorious one. Y'all, our joy can't be taken. And so I, I have to admit, though, I, as I was writing, I, I, I had to make sure I was clear that I mean, I'm not naive enough to think that I can just be blindly joyful, ignorant of our surroundings. Our joy can't be taken, but I do remember our first point, that sorrow is inevitable. And so how these things uh, hit us and resonate with us as believers in Christ, man, we just work through them differently. We're able to walk in sorrow knowing Jesus' promise that joy will come. We don't have to move quickly through it, but we can rest in the promises and praise God that he doesn't leave us there, but he turns our sorrow to joy. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit that he convicts us as we saw a, a week or two ago that he convicts us towards righteousness. He continually brings us new life. And so as Paul says in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. And we know about, the, if you know about the apostle Paul's life, man, it wasn't sunshine and rainbows, but he's still calling them to rejoice because he knows that there's nothing in this world that's better than what Christ has to offer. And so as we see this, these results of sorrow being turned to joy, I want to show us three results today um, in this. And so we see lasting joy. Uh, we see that we're able to ask anything in the Father. And then we see that there's joy in receiving from the Father. 
And the first thing that we see is that there's lasting joy. We see it in verses 22 and 24 where it says, No one will take your joy from you. It says that your joy may be full. And so in this, I I just want to make sure that we're clear that, man, this is not just a momentary gladness in a situation. I love the good warm and fuzzy feelings that you get after a good book. Man, those are sweet. After a good movie, you get that? It's these warm and fuzzy feelings. But man, what Jesus is telling his disciples and us today is that there's more joy that, give, that lasts more than an hour or a week or a month, but forevermore. Our joy and our salvation cannot be taken. And so what we have in Christ is a solid foundation, one that cannot be moved or taken away. And this lasting joy is beautiful as a result of what Christ has done for us. Man, I loved how one theologian stated is that angels can't give it, evil can't take it away. This is only something that can come from the holy God. And so in all this, we have to remember that where does our joy come from or out of? It comes out of our sorrow. We begin to realize that, no, like Jesus turns our sorrow to joy. And so how this works then is is that God doesn't promise the follower of Christ an easy life. Scripture paints almost the opposite picture. He told just a a little bit earlier in the evening that they would be hated by the world. We still live in a broken world, and what Jesus does is he takes our sorrow and our pain, and he says, bring that to me. Let me redeem it for my glory, for your good. Let me turn that sorrow and that hard thing that you have walked through or are walking in and know that it's not pointless, but I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it. I'm going to build my kingdom out of it because God is a redeeming God. He takes all those scars and those battle wounds that you have, and he says, I'm going to use those so that you can walk with others who are going through the same thing. He says that we're going to turn that sorrow to joy, and you're going to see how I can use what you've gone through to walk with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to use what you've walked through in that sorrow, and we're going to turn it to joy because you're going to be able to help a brother and sister not take those same steps. They're going to be able to avoid some pain because of who you, what you have gone through and who I am and what I'm doing in your life. Jesus does this for us, and so though we're in a broken world, I love that we get to see Jesus redeem these things. And so then in that, we get to see how uh, in the book of James chapter 1, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And it, I, I love this. I love how it ties into what we're learning on Wednesday nights in the book of James, and that this is just not some superficial joy, but it's a joy that's rooted in something so much deeper so much greater than anything else in this world. And so though that the world brings us sorrow, Christ brings us joy. And the things of this world will fade away and will disappoint and will fail, but I promise you, God is not going to fail. And so this, I want to be clear, this doesn't mean that we don't experience pain and hurt. We get sad. We struggle. On this side of heaven, we have to remember that we're in a fallen world and things are hard, that sorrow is inevitable. With childbirth, Jordan... I mean, she did not forget the pain, and it did not magically disappear. All right, it, it, it's here. That would have been awesome, but there was still pain. There were still effects of the fall, but her joy couldn't be taken in that moment. And I think the same holds true for us in Christ, because Jesus has won the battle. The victory is his. 
And so we can then trust him in all circumstances and we can count it all joy because of who we are following. Because he promises. He promises to turn this sorrow to joy. Is that one day, I love, in verse 23, he says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. And if I'm going to be really honest with y'all, which I am, man, in this, man, this was hard to like discern what he's talking about because I was like, man, I feel like the disciples are still going to have some questions. Somebody just rose from the grave. All right, we, we got questions, all right? But what he's kind of saying here to his disciples is that when they realize who Jesus is and what he has done for them, when it all like clicks in that moment, that the most important question that they could ask has been answered, that Jesus is the living God. He is the son of God who has defeated sin and death and the grave, and now this is him in all of his glory. It all, like what he's been telling them in the last night he's been with them, all begins to like click, like it all just falls in. And I love it that we just got done and talking about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, I love how it talks about in, earlier in chapter 16, that it reveals all truth, kind of brings all things together. And so are there going to be questions? Yes. But the main question when we determine who Jesus is and what he has done for us, all these like, all this trust flows from that. We don't have to have it all figured out, but we can trust the one who does. And so in that, we can trust Jesus because the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And so when we have lasting joy, we can see that then out of that, we can, are able to ask anything of the Father. We see this in verses 23 and 24. It says, uh, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I just, this blows my mind verses like this where he's like, man, ask the Father anything in my name. He's already told them that he's going to turn their sorrow to joy, but now he's saying, no, I'm giving you more. You can go to the Father and ask anything in my name. And so we have to make sure when we read passages like this that we're on the same page. And I'm really thankful for Pastor Eric and how he's, we, he's mentioned this already multiple times throughout our Upper Room series. And Pastor Eric has done a phenomenal job of laying just some wonderful groundwork and building out on this. And so we're not going to spend a ton of time. But Jesus tells his disciples that they haven't asked anything in his name because he's been there. They haven't had to ask in his name. He's been there with them. And so they've gone to the Father and asked as Jesus has taught them to pray but that's how that's worked. And so Jesus is saying that the dynamics are changing. Their access to the Father is now granted based upon his name. He's telling them that, <coughs> that there is great power in his name. There's great power in who, who the one who has made a way when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What we begin to see is that Jesus is saying, yes, it is through me that you can now get to the Father in prayer. And so they don't go based on themselves and all their unrighteousness. No, they go based on the merit and work of Jesus. Just as we are saved through Christ's work, we now go and ask God, the God Almighty with the authority of Christ. Y'all, it is it's mind-blowing to me. But I think we can all relate to being able to say, oh, um, call on someone else's name to receive a benefit at some point in our lives whether that was a parent or a teacher or someone for me the thing that came to mind was my wonderful sister-in-law man sydney is awesome in so many ways uh, but one of the ways that i've seen this play out is my sister-in-law works for hilton and so with hilton you get friends and family and you can give them a discount and so i'm like man praise the lord 
All right, we're going to do some traveling, all right? And so Sydney hooks us up with all these really cool places, and she does these things, and I get to benefit from the merit that she's put in with Hilton, uh, with, the, with, the, um, with where she's at in Hilton. And we're like, oh, we can actually do this. We can use her status, her merit, her work, and we can go stay at these really cool places. And so I'm extremely thankful for that. And seeing the power of a name just with my sister-in-law, who's awesome, but how much more is this true with Christ? That we're able to confidently go to the throne of grace and put our requests before God by asking in the name of Jesus. Man, we need to be clear. This doesn't mean we just throw up anything willy-nilly. Like This isn't what he's saying here. Because when you come on behalf of somebody else, you're their ambassador. You're a representative of what that person, when you use their name, that's why 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, therefore you are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And so when we go and we ask the Father in the name of Jesus, our requests are to align with who Jesus is. That's why when he tells us that we can ask in his name and it will be given to us, it's because we're asking in things that are aligned with that and if Je- who are in line with Jesus in his name and his character and his mission. And so when we ask those things, it's like Jesus is asking those things and God's like, yes, this is what I want to do. And so we're not asking based on our wants, but we're asking on who Jesus is in that. And I love that this is aligned to his character in this mission. And so the only way that we're going to know who Jesus is, his character, his mission, what to ask is by actually knowing who Jesus is. And the only way that we can do that is by spending unhurried time in God's word, by communicating with him through prayer. If we're going to pray like this and see prayers answered like this, we have to know who Jesus is and how, what he would ask. I love, and we're going to look at this this week in, uh, on our Wednesday night um, uh, uh, city group here, and I invite you to join us at 7 o'clock. Uh, James chapter 4, we're going to see that they're asking, but they're not receiving because they're asking with selfish motives. And so we're beginning to see that, no, we have to ask according to the authority of Christ, in line with his character. And so what we see in this passage is clear that if we ask in that way, he will answer that prayer. But once again, we we can't be naive enough to know or think that if I just pray in this particular way, God's going to answer it all the time. If you prayed for any length of time, you know that sometimes God doesn't answer the prayer the way we prayed it. And that's hard. It is. And we realize, like, wait, it was aligned with God. How, how How do we make all this mesh? But I think in that is that, man, we have to really lean into who Jesus is. Man, he's the one who knew when the hour was appointed for everything. He's the one who holds all authority in heaven and earth. We are not the keepers of time holding space together, holding creation together. No, Jesus is the one with all authority. And in these moments where we're we're prone to doubt, when we're prone to wonder, man, we remember that we have a wonderful Savior. Man, a perfect heavenly Father. And if he withholds or answers our prayers differently than we expect, then there is a reason for it. Because y'all, I believe this, that God is working for our good and for his glory. And so if it doesn't get answered the way we want this side of heaven, that doesn't change who Jesus is or how much he loves us. And so this is the, with our final few moments together, man, we get to see a result of Jesus turning our sorrow to joy, is that we have joy in receiving from the Father. I love how verse 24 says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
Y'all, I just want to stop and let you know that God wants us to have joy. Man, that's a sweet thing, isn't it? That he wants our joy to be full. And we see that Jesus says he's going to turn the disciples' sorrow to joy and that the joy is no longer going to be anchored in the things of this world, but it's going to be anchored in Christ. Because when we are anchored in Christ, we realize we're a new creation, that we are directed and guided by the Holy Spirit of God. And we desire and begin to desire and ask what he wants. And when we begin to ask those things, we begin to see those things answered. And when we begin to see those things answered, man, our joy, we get excited about what God is doing. Y'all, over the past year that I've been here at New City, we have prayed and we have seen God answer. And that just, just propels me to be more bought in, more ready to go, and more just in love with who God is and what he has done for us. Y'all, we've seen baptisms. We've seen salvations. We've seen, we're going to see a missions trip going forth. Like we are seeing God move. And I'm so excited about what is going on in this. And so we get to see these things come to fruition and our joy becomes full. And when our joy becomes full, we just begin to ask more and more. And our trust and our faith in God begins to grow. And I love that. I love that my joy is not wrapped up in this world. Because the world can just fall, falter, and it lets us down. But I know that God does not. I know that there's going to be sorrow and pain in this world, but I know that Jesus will redeem it, that he will turn it to joy because he's going to use broken vessels like us to bring about his mission to completion. And I just, I've, I've walked in sorrow. I've walked with others who have been in sorrow. And I just want to kind of leave you with a practical thing that's been really good for me. And that's simply Man, I, I find a truth in Scripture. I find a passage, a characteristic of God. And I just cling to those. Even the promise that in this, He will turn our sorrow to joy. I don't know exactly how He's going to do it, New City Church, but I know He's going to. When I've walked through it, and I, man, there's been moments where I've been like, Lord, I do not know what is going on. I don't got it. What I tell myself, is that, God, you are good. God, you love me. And that you are for me. And I just, I sit in that. I preach the gospel, my, gospel to myself through that. Because there's beauty in knowing Christ and beauty in knowing who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And in that, I can confidently say, no matter what, that, God, you are good and that you love me and you're for me. If you haven't trusted in Christ today, if you haven't placed your hope and faith in Jesus, I mean, I invite you, man, come up and talk to me after this. Talk with someone who uh, you came with today. And if you came by yourself, I would love to connect with you. And just talk more about this because it's true what God does for us. And I want to just encourage you, if you are a follower of Christ in the final moments that we are together, remember the beautiful truth in verse 22, that no one will take your joy away from you. Man, it can feel like it's taken away, but I want you to cling to this promise in Scripture that God wants us to have joy. One pastor that I read said it this way, that our joy can't be taken. We just lose sight of the one who brings us joy. And so we can fix our eyes upon Jesus, and in that we can see how he's going to turn our sorrow to joy. And maybe we don't see it all, but we can trust in him through the one who promised that it would come to fruition. And so your sorrow and your pain can be redeemed. It will be redeemed and transformed into joy because of us trusting in Christ and what he has done.
And so our hope and joy in this life is not tied to anything in this world, but only in the person and finished work of Christ. Let us pray together. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for who you are and what you have done. God, you have, you have just made a way for us to not live completely in our sorrow, but to see that sorrow turn to joy, joy based upon you and your finished work. And so, God, we thank you for that. We thank you for being a God who restores and who redeems. God, we love you, and thank you for the joy that you bring. See your name, and we pray.